You ready for an intro? Oh yeah, that too. Okay. <laughs> hey, murder lovers, my name is Mackenzie. And this is Fatina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. This week's episode is brought to you by our two newest Patreons, Jennifer and Jen, who are both part of the Murder Lovers. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. Uh, so speaking of Patreons, if you haven't done so already, if you want to go look at it and sign up, you would have instant access to the two bonus episodes that are already available there for you. So if you would like to check it out, it's patreon.com forward slash stranger danger podcast. Did my voice crack? Yep, sure did. <laughs> hello, hello, hello. Hello. What are you telling me today? Oh, so my story today, I heard my favorite murder cover this a while ago, and it was like one of those stories where I was like, wow, I can't believe that happened, and I've been waiting for my moment to cover it, and this just felt like that week. Okay. I am going to tell you today about the San Ysidro McDonald's Massacre. What? It is, my understanding, last time I googled it, was that it was the eighth largest would they call it the largest mass shooting in the United States? Okay. History? That As sounds of right. when? As of like yesterday. Oh, okay. I think that's what it said. All right. <laughs> so, uh, and the number eight is sticking out to me, so I'm pretty okay. sure that's what it was. It's my favorite number. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Did I know that? Mm-hmm. Was that your soccer number? Yes. And also my birthday. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I was born 88. Oh, perfect. So. 8888. Yep. This is the story of James Huberty. He was born October 11th of 1942. He contracted polio when he was three years old, and it permanently impacted his ability to walk. So he, like, used those, like, metal brace things and stuff like that. Um, But as he got older, he had kind of a permanent limp from that. And he was... In a really religious household. So between that and, like, his kind of off-putting personality, like, his limp and everything like that, he wasn't really great with friends. Sure. Uh, He kind of had, like, a history of being bullied and such. When he was a little bit older, in the 1950s, so remember he was born in 1942. So in the 1950s, at some point, his dad purchased a farm in the Pennsylvania Amish country. He was like, I'm going to farm out there. And his mom was like... No, like I don't, I don't want to. Okay. And so she abandoned the entire family, including her son. She was like, I really don't want to go. So I'm just going to. She's like, you guys can go if you want to, but I'm not. myself out. Okay. And she just took it as her opportunity to like exit stage left altogether. To start over. Yeah. Okay. And so her son, obviously James, took this like really, really, really hard. Of course. His dad said that he would often find him out like against the barn, just like sobbing. Aww. And a uh, minister said that James blamed God for taking his mom. Because again, they were like a devoutly religious sure. family. And he had the hardest time with it, which one could very realistically understand. Like your mom just up and leaves and you're like. And you moved and you have a yeah. yeah, whole new environment. But it was really, like, his mom's absence that just, like, took such a toll on him. Yeah, between that and his lack of friends and everything like that, he really struggled socially. And then later on in his early adulthood, he kind of, like, took up the hobby of guns and firearms. Okay. Country boy. Yeah, but when it's part of a story, it's always a red flag. Yeah. So, developed quite an interest in guns and firearms um, and kind of found somewhat of a knack for them. Probably for him, it was a bit of a confidence boost, I would think, to find something that you feel 
like you're kind of good at and gives you like kind of a sense of empowerment when right. you're once you start feeling like you can talk to anyone about this completely knowledgeably like you can talk about it in and out then yeah. that's your comfort zone yeah and yeah. i think it gives you a sense of especially with guns there's some sense of protection there that's true like too. and a sense of like control over your your environment a little bit right yeah that was his hobby in 1962 he attended malone college and that was a jesuit school i have such a hard time saying that a jesuit school that's affiliated with the catholic church my dad actually went to jesuit in portland Mm. but big school here yeah he earned a degree in sociology but then later became licensed for embalming oh after he attended the pittsburgh institute of mortuary science after he graduated, he met a woman named Etna in 1965. They got married. They had two daughters together. They had um, Zalia and Cassandra. They were born in 1972 and 1974. During this time, they lived in Ohio, and James actually took a job as a funeral home undertaker, so he did end up putting that embalming thing to... What else does an undertaker do? I think the undertaker does... The embalming and prepping the body for For burial or cremation or whatever. Okay. That's my understanding. Hmm. Could be wrong. If you're an undertaker, let me know. He also had several jobs that he kind of worked on the side to kind of um, compensate for some of the income, but he would always lose them. He was like kind Hmm. of a diabolical personality and with like his off-putting nature, people found him very difficult to work with. So he'd get a job, lose a job, get a job, lose a job. And then their family home was actually destroyed in a fire. So at that point, he moved back to his hometown in Canton, and there he worked as a welder. But things at home were still, like, pretty tumultuous. So Etna and James themselves, as a couple, had an extensive history of domestic violence, and that kind of infiltrated down to their daughters. Um, At one point, James held a knife to his daughter's (sighs) neck, Etna and James themselves would get into, like, full-out, like, fist fights with each other. Wow. Etna would encourage, or both parents actually would encourage the girls to use violence to solve issues with, like, their friends. And Etna at one point tried to get her daughter to solve something by fighting them, by fighting another girl at a party. And then Etna herself threatened the girl's mom with a gun. Oh, it's just a whole family event. Yeah, it's like... They're like, how explosive can we be as a unit? (laughs) And then James, at one point, threatened to shoot a neighborhood dog just for, like, pooping in his yard. Okay. And, um, trigger warning, um, James actually killed the family dog after a neighbor said the dog damaged his car. The fuck? Yeah, they killed, he killed his own dog. Wow. This is just the beginning. You're just telling me background on this guy. Telling you, like, who he is as a family man. (laughs) Okay. As a family man. (laughs) As a family man. Uh, He had become very paranoid. He thought that foreign bankers were manipulating the Federal Reserves and they were intentionally bankrupting America. And in this process, he also became a prepper. So he called it a survivalist. And I'm like, no, you're a prepper. So he had like thousands of dollars of non-perishable foods that he'd hoarded. I think during this time he acquired six firearms, a plethora of ammunition. Of course. He was ready for For zombies. Yeah. Yeah. Apocalypse. Mm -hmm. Because he was becoming like increasingly unhinged, 
again, his jobs would continue to be in jeopardy. If ever he felt like his job was about to be taken out from under him, he would threaten to shoot people to like try and good God, <laughs> try and entice his employers to keep him on staff. I will not do the closing shift. Yeah. Force me and I'll shoot you. Or you will die. And they're like, what? we're going to keep you then. <laughs> That's how it works. At one point, things got um, even more complicated at home and he tried to commit suicide by um, trying to shoot himself in the head. But his wife, and this was after he actually lost one of his side jobs, okay. his wife talked him down and told him not to pull the trigger, basically. And then he was super upset with her for not letting him kill himself. Okay. Which, hindsight now is twenty twenty. A lot of lives would have been saved, but obviously, like, that's not the answer either. Right. Balls were dropped all over. Like, that was an obvious cry for mental health help, and his wife just sat there twiddling her thumbs. Like, never getting him the help that he needed. She did a lot of things wrong in all of this, honestly. In 1983, he was actually involved in a motorcycle accident. Now, remember, he has um, polio nerve damage throughout his body. And so after the accident happened, polio kind of lingers in the body as, like, a neurological issue. Mm. And the accident caused an injury to his right arm that combined with the polio made his right arm twitch uncontrollably. Oh. So that would just be, like... Just thing on top of thing for this guy. Yeah. So, obviously, as an unsteady hand now, he could no longer work as a welder. Oh. And lost that job. Then they had bought a property and turned it into an apartment complex in Canton. And a real estate agent was supposed to basically take over the apartment complex, but the deal fell through. They lost a ton of money. So the family up and moved to Tijuana, Mexico in 1984. Well, that's a big move. Yeah. From Ohio to Mexico? Yeah. I don't... He said that basically his idea was that he was going to go there and like... Do real estate or... No, because he didn't do real estate, but that he was going to... Figure out a way to, like, start a business or something. That didn't pan out. So, like, within a couple months, they moved from Tijuana, Mexico to San Diego. And then they settled in San Ysidro. And then he began working as a security guard, but then was shortly fired from that. Just Just the most unstable. I'm over here trying to just, like, take it all in. There's a lot happening. Yeah. So, ticking time bomb. All of these yeah. things are building up. So after he lost his job as a security guard, two weeks later on July 15th, again in 1984, he told his wife that he thought he had a mental problem. And again, she does nothing. And then two days later on July 17th, he calls a mental health center in San Diego and asks for an appointment. Now, the receptionist misspelled his name in the system, misspelled it as Schuberty. Asked him a few questions, like, has he ever been institutionalized before? Civil things about causing harm, things like that. Basically did um, triage, if you will. Yeah, Yeah. okay. And she assured him that somebody would return his call within a few hours. James sat quietly and waited by the phone for several hours. Oh, no. And no one ever called. And they found out later that nobody ever called because his call had been listed as non-crisis and the turnaround time for those is 48 hours. So he spent all day long sitting and waiting by the phone for somebody to call him back and nobody ever called. And, and for someone who's needing help and asking for it an hour is, I'm sure, an eternity. Well, yeah, and his wife said he just waited quietly and sat oh. by the phone for hours And nobody ever called. And so he just, like, got fed up at one point and grabbed his keys and left for a motorcycle ride. 
And then he came home, had dinner with his family, took the girls to the park, watched a movie with his wife. Everything seemingly... Okay. He seemed fine. Like, he was in an okay mood. Like, no red alarm there. Yeah. But... Damn, telling somebody you're going to call them in a couple hours and you log it as non-crisis, 48-hour turnaround time. The expectations weren't set right, yeah. Honestly, like, somebody calling a mental health crisis should never be a 48-hour turnaround time. Never. No. And I know they're very overwhelmed. I'm sure. Um, I don't know what that was like in 1984. Right. Um, There is a huge gap there. Right. Big opportunity for improvement. So the next day he took his, so the next day is July 18th, takes his family to the San Diego Zoo, and during this time he tells his wife that he thought his life was over, and he made a comment that society had their chance. Basically, they had their chance to save him and help, and they didn't. So he had given them the opportunity to change the direction of where things were headed, and that had failed. And then he took his family to eat at a McDonald's in Claremont, and then he returned home. And I know what you were thinking. He went to McDonald's in Claremont. This is where the story should begin. But it's not. This is a different McDonald's. Okay. (laughs) He returned home and dropped off his family, and then he goes and packs up his guns, puts on fatigue pants and a dark maroon shirt, and he goes to leave the house carrying his bag. And his wife was like, um... What you doing? And she said she asked him what she was doing because she was trying to plan dinner. Oh, God. I was like, okay. (laughs) No. You don't notice the camo in the bag? Yeah. None of this is... Well, it gets worse. So he tells his wife that he's heading out and he wanted to kiss her goodbye. His wife goes, well, what are you doing or what are you going to go do? And he says, I'm hunting. Hunting humans. He said that? He said hunting humans. And then... He tells his oldest daughter that he won't be back as he walks out the door. He says, goodbye, I won't be coming home. If this thing could register blinks, I'm over here like, what? And she doesn't call the police. No. The wife doesn't do anything. She's like, all right, have a good day. I'm so confused. And that's what I mean. Like, she literally, like, there's so many opportunities here where she dropped the ball. She dropped the ball in getting him help. What the heck? Yeah, so she's like, I'm going right. to go hunt humans. Yeah. And she was like. He says, I'm, I'm going hunting, hunting humans. And then he says, I want to kiss you goodbye. And then tells his daughter he's not coming home. And she's like, all right, see you later. Wow. Like, how many more red flags do you need? And she had just seen him the day before calling a mental health crisis center. He told you that day he felt like his life was over. What did you think was going to happen? I, I literally don't know what was going through her head. Like, I don't know how I can't a brain doesn't process that and fathom says, it. Huh. And I'm like, so confused right now. Right. If my partner said something to me like that, I would be like, okay, we need to do something uh-huh. right now. Like drop the bag, call 911, sit down. And there's part of me that thinks like she probably didn't intervene like physically because he's carrying all this weaponry. Right. But at the same time, the second he steps foot out of that door, you better be picking up the phone and calling 911. Something. Something. Do something. I, I mean, to a certain extent, I extent, I, I understand the, the being stunned at the comment type of thing and just being shocked and not knowing what to say right at the moment. But at the same time, like you said, step out the door. I'm doing something. Yeah. Do something once he's gone. Anything. No. Nothing. She's like, all right, got to figure out when to make dinner. Bitch. <laughs> 
I like, there's part of me that's like, <sighs> you have blood on your hands. Oh, absolutely. 100%. I don't want to blame somebody who didn't actually pull the trigger, but at the same no. point, it's like, at some point, we have a responsibility to the people that we love to make sure that they are safe and not harming themselves and others. At uh-huh. least try. Yep. Anyway, my own personal commentary. So then James leaves and he goes down, um, I think it's San Ysidro Boulevard. He goes to a supermarket first and then he goes to a post office and he's staking out possible options to commit this crime that he's built up in his head. Oh, so he hasn't even chosen the location He hasn't chosen a location yet. This is very, like, kind of feels spur of the moment. Like erratic. And somebody actually sees him walking on the boulevard. He he drives to all these different locations, but at some point he's like walking kind of between. This oh, is okay. all like some of these built like the post office and McDonald's are literally right next door to each other. Okay. So um somebody sees him walking and he's open carrying. So you can see that he has a gun on him and somebody calls the police and they give the wrong address. Oh my God. So the police are like, I don't know where I'm going. So nobody I think that was at like 340. Well, and McDonald's are so ubiquitous that you could just say, like, I'm at McDonald's on San Isidro, and it would be That's like the gonna one... come into play. Like... That's gonna come into play. Hold that thought. Okay. Oh. So <laughs> Yeah, so they see him walking and they're like they call police and say that this guy's out there carrying a gun, but they give the wrong address. So then he ultimately walks into McDonald's on San Isidro Boulevard, and there are 45 people inside. And Huberty goes in, he holds up his gun to what was supposed to be his first victim, which was 16-year-old John Arnold. And an assistant manager yells to John as he sees this guy bring the gun out. And he goes, John, that guy's going to shoot you or whatever. He yells at him, mm-hmm. which is just a very strange thing to say. Like, that guy's going to shoot you. Instead of just like, duck or out move or something. Or something. Yeah. But the gun jams. <gasps> Nothing happens. God kind of, like, looks over the gun or whatever, and he's, like, messing with it, and the general man... Or, I'm sorry, the store manager walks over to her, him, and it's 22-year-old Neva Kane, and she thought it was a joke. She's like, you are some sick, twisted bastard coming in here pretending like you were going to pull a gun in some kid's face and shoot him. She's, like, going over to confront him, thinking it's a joke. And then he manages to unjam the gun... Oh, no. ...and points it at her face and shoots her in the oh, eye. No. And that is the first shot that starts his whole killing spree. He then turns around and shoots John in the arm and the chest, and he tells everybody to lie down. And then when everybody lies down, he begins opening fire. He has an Uzi, which I asked my brother what that is. It's an automatic rifle. Yeah. Um, He also has a 9mm at this point. And he pulls out the Uzi and begins just firing off at people. He's calling them dirty swine and also Ugh. refers to them as, quote, Vietnamese assholes. The fuck? Which is interesting because in this part of town, it is largely of Mexican immigrants and Mexican Americans. Okay. Vietnamese people were not, this was a, a large, large Mexican population. Okay. Yeah. The people inside were primarily Hispanic. Okay. But he's referring to them as Vietnamese swine. So there's a lot of question about whether or not it was racially motivated, but the race that he seemed to have been targeting was not of the population that he was shooting into. So there's not really an understanding of why. Um, So he walked through the McDonald's calmly shooting anyone who survived the initial random shooting. Oh, God. As people tried to flee, he would shoot at them, as well as the people in the parking lot. They had, because, like... 
none of this is secured at this point. People are trying to run out and people are coming in not realizing what's happening. So some woman at one point pulls into the drive-thru, gets up to the window, looks in and sees this guy shooting people, throws her car in reverse, hits a fence, hides in the bushes. But other people are like... There were oh three kids God. that were riding by on bikes and come in through the parking lot. He shoots the no, kids no, no, in the parking no. lot. There were people that were like a construction worker that came in, parked, and went to come into the building oh. not knowing what was happening, saw the glass and thought that they were going through construction. Holy, how many people? And Are you going to give me a number here? How many people are dead? Yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you. Okay. Um, construction worker pulls in, thinks that they're going through construction or whatever, and he fires out the window at them. Oh, my goodness. So so he entered the building at 3.56 p.m. The first 911 call happens at 4 p.m., and they tell the police that a shooting is happening at the post office oh. next to McDonald's. But okay. the dispatcher mistakenly sends police to another McDonald's two miles away. So they go to this other McDonald's, and nothing's happening there, and they're like, this is really weird. Altogether, it takes police almost 10 minutes to arrive after the first 911 call. The oh. first officer on the, rece- on the scene comes in at 4.07 p.m. and thinks an accident has happened. How? Because there's glass shards everywhere, but he can't really oh. figure out what's going on. And they oh. said what, what was really challenging about this scenario is that the glass was so reflective and it was shattered all over the ground that it would bounce back the reflection of the sun. Uh-huh. It was practically blinding the officers. You couldn't really get a good look at what was happening because of the amount of glass that was sending out reflections. Wow. And because of the number of guns that he was using and things like that, they couldn't get a good grasp on how many people there many were, shooters. what was going on. Yeah. So, yeah, he comes on thinking it's an accident. Then James walks outside. James Huberty walks outside and opens fire at the officer. So the officer jumps and hides behind a truck, and he doesn't return fire because he thinks it's a group of shooters. He's like, there's a whole gang of people in here because of the. it's an automatic rifle, so it's going off of so fast. Yeah. yeah, he's like, there's this has to be a whole group. So he calls in a code 10, which is code for squ- for a SWAT team. And Code 11, which is all available officers. I mean, you needed both of those anyway. So The whole troop, we yeah. go. Got um, those parking tickets, get over here. Yeah, everybody. And so SWAT arrives, everybody like gets on scene or whatever. Initially, like I said, they thought there were many shooters. James is hiding inside of McDonald's. The sun is making it impossible for them to see what's going on. They shut down the six surrounding blocks of wow. the McDonald's. He's within walking distance from his apartment. Oh. This is like, I think they said it was less than 800 yards from his apartment. But they shut down six blocks surrounding the area. They also closed the Tijuana border and Interstate 5. So they're shutting down any escape route for him. Can't get on Interstate 5, and he can't cross the border into Mexico, so we can't lose him. That's the goal. But at this point, they don't even know what they're dealing with. They don't know what they're dealing with, but they know that they don't want whoever it is to get away. Yeah. So, now remember, this happens right before 4 p.m. It's not until 5.05, almost an hour later, the officers get the okay to kill the perp if somebody gets a clear shot. takes over an hour for them to get that sign-off. At this point, he's holding the entire building hostage, even though they're not having any communication with him. They're just trying to get sight of him, right? Yeah. He, at one point, walks through. 
he can be seen like throwing food at people. Like he throws food at people before he shoots them. What the fuck? And he went into the back office at one point and found people hiding back there. And he was like, oh, you thought you were going to hide and get away and open fired on them. At 5.16 p.m., a sniper named Chuck Foster, who was positioned in the post office, was able to get a visual on James. He was standing near the counter, and they thought that he was playing with, like, the radio system or something, trying to get news coverage on what was happening of himself. Yeah. And he gets clear shot at him, and he shoots through the glass window into James's heart, which severs an artery and kills him instantly. The whole event itself lasted 77 minutes. And when officers entered, there was a wounded girl that was lying on the ground and she was still awake and conscious, but barely moving. And they asked him or asked her if he was the only shooter and she could just nod her head. Yes. Wow. All in all, he fired 257 bullets. Whoa. 21 people died. Dang. 19 people were injured. And the San Ysidro Civic Center had to be used to hold the wakes because the funeral homes didn't have capacity for all the bodies. Wow. The property was eventually torn down and it was rebuilt as the Southwestern Community College Education Center. Um, and there is a memorial there for the victims. San Diego actually implemented a special police training and gave officers high power firearms because of the initial responding officer who didn't return fire because all he had on him was a pistol. That could that never get there. compete yeah. with an automatic rifle. So, I mean, there were some things that changed. Um, psychiatric counseling is now also being offered to officers that are involved in traumatic incidents in the San Ysidro area. Oh, because of this? Because of this. Wow. Because so many officers had severe, severe PTSD oh, after sure. this event. Like, they weren't sleeping. They weren't eating. They yeah. weren't. They were all messed up. The families of the victims actually tried to sue McDonald's. Oh. But I'm like... What was McDonald's going to do about it? Like, what? I mean. What could they have done? We're a very litigious country. I know, but that's where I'm like, what What were they? What were their options? They're probably none. None. But people are going to try and sue whoever they can. And I think that just comes from a place of sadness and anger. And I understand it to a certain extent, but I don't, did it go anywhere? No, they no. did not win. Probably not. Now, here's the kicker. Etna, his wife. Yeah. Also filed her own lawsuit. Shut up. She tried to sue McDonald's in 1986 and his former employers. She said that he was made homicidal by eating McDonald's chicken nuggets and working around poisonous metals at his job. Who? If eating chicken nuggets makes you homicidal, we're all firing. We are all firing. Needless to say, she was not successful. Well, not only that, but like... Oh my goodness, people. Etna. I can't really. Yeah. Made him homicidal and what? The chicken nuggets made him homicidal. Mm -hmm. And um, as well as the metals from where he worked, when he worked as a welder, she said that he was working around poisonous metals. And so that also contributed. Yeah, sue them, whatever. But you can't blame a food. I was like, hey, Edna, how about they all sue you for not calling the police? Right. When did that come out? Because if we know this now that she's saying that's what her husband said right before. Like James said, I'm going hunting. I'm hunting humans. Yeah. Then when did that come out? Because if I were a prosecutor at any capacity, I would absolutely throw some charges on her. Yeah. And I'm thinking it was before this because she, this occurred in 1984. She didn't sue until 1986. Hmm. Anyway, she was not successful. 
Interestingly enough, though, they did perform an autopsy on him, and his autopsy did show very high levels of lead and cadmium in his system, which are toxic metals. Probably from his welding job. From his welding job. But to what extent that impacts your mental capacity is really hard to say, and it sounds like he was... He was pretty volatile before this, before he became a welder. Well, I mean, it it sounds like he had a lot of issues being compacted on top of one another. I mean, obviously, like, chronic illness is serious, and that can definitely impact your mental health, you know? And being a polio survivor and having those symptoms be reoccurring, and then on top of that, his... There's no way to prove what exactly it was that set him off. And so... It sounds like it was a a, a compilation of things, though. Yeah. But not the chicken nuggets. She and her daughters eventually had to relocate and change their names due to the number of death threats they were receiving. I'm sure. Really quick, I'll go through um, the victims, because there were so many of them, and they range in age, and I think that's kind of important to point out. So... Um, Elsa, Herlinda, Borba, Furrow. I'm going to butcher some of these names. I'm so sorry. Are they Spanish? Yes. You want me to read them? Yes. Okay. Elsa Erlinda Borboafirro, 19. She was a McDonald's employee. Neva Denise Kane, 22. She was the McDonald's manager. Michelle Deanne Carncross, 18. Maria Elena Colmenero Silva, 19. David Flores Delgado, 11. Gloria Lopez Gonzalez, 23. Omar Alonso Hernandez, 11. Blythe Regan Herrera, 31. She was the mother of Mateo Herrera, who was 11. Paulina Aquino Lopez, 21. She was an employee. Margarita Padilla, she was 18, a McDonald's employee. Claudia Perez, 9. Oh, God. Jose Ruben Lozano Perez, 19. Carlos Reyes, 8 months. He, so he, when his mom was shot, say his mom's name. Um, Jackie Lynn Wright Reyes, 18. She's 18 years old. His mom was shot and the baby, because Carlos, uh-huh. sat up and started crying and he shot the baby in the back. Oh my God. Uh, Victor Maximiliano Rivera, 25. Arisdelsi Vuelvas Vargas, 31. Hugo Luis Velasquez Vasquez, 45. Lawrence Herman Gus Versless, 62. Aida Velasquez Victoria, 69. And Miguel Victoria Ulloa, 74, husband of Aida Victoria. So, as you can see, a lot of families in here. Um, so yes, the mother tried to shield her baby. She was shot and then he was shot when he started crying. Um, and then there were several, as you can see, several parents in here and several kids. They were at McDonald's. It was very much a family thing. And so very often what they described was that these mothers would try and shield their children. Of course. And he would shoot through them basically. And the older couple there that you see there, um, Ida and Miguel, mm-hmm. um, Miguel tried to shield his wife who oh, was 69 God. years old and was there, they were killed essentially trying to protect the people they loved. Oh. And these were just the people that died. This is not including the people the that were injured. Injured, right. Yeah. And so it has gone down in history as one of the largest mass shootings in all of That's a lot. the United States. Yeah. 
And um, yeah, so that is the story of the San Ysidro McDonald shooting. Wow. I had never heard of that. Yeah, that one's crazy. I'd never heard of that. In a sense, it's some sort of relief when police or sniper does their job and yeah. gets rid of the imminent threat. Yeah. Because we don't know if he could have gone outside and even killed more people. We don't including know how much those police officers. He had. Exactly. And not that a day of court day in court would have made it any better. But it's but just I'm like what kind of damage was done in just ten minutes? That's a lot. Ten minutes before they were able to lock things down, keep people from going through the freaking parking lot, the kids from riding their bikes on the right. freaking sidewalk that he shot at. The amount of damage that was done just in 10 minutes from wrong addresses. Right. And just, ugh, it's nauseating. Goodness gracious. That kind of stuff makes me so, so nervous for stuff. Like, that you could literally go to McDonald's and some lunatic walks in and starts shooting. Yeah, like the two older people, they're probably enjoying their senior coffees. I always make fun of my dad because yeah. he goes in and he's like, senior coffee, that's all he gets. He loves McDonald's coffee. Yeah. And that you could just be innocently having your morning coffee there. Yeah. Or taking your kid to have breakfast or lunch or whatever. And just, it's you like, never imagine. And that's what is so scary about this world. But and that's like the, the shooting that happened at the movie theater. When the shooting happened in Aurora, Colorado, it was like they had literally gone in to see... It Batman. Was Batman, mm-hmm. yeah. They'd gone in to see Batman, and somebody comes in and starts shooting. And what do you do? Right. My I, mom does this with me all the time, which is so unnerving, but it's so important, and it's something that I'm like, at some point, I'll probably have to continue myself. And she goes, okay, well, if somebody walked in right now mm-hmm. and started shooting, what would you do? Yeah. And so it, like, gets my mind thinking through what my options are. Right. And the fact that we have to prep for that kind of stuff is so unnerving. Yeah. And that it could happen anywhere for no rhyme or reason. I'm always on high alert when I'm, in, when I'm traveling. Yeah. I'm on high alert, especially when I'm walking down streets in a city that I don't know. But it's hard to imagine to be prepared somewhere that you feel comfortable. Yeah. Somewhere where you're vulnerable because you're just eating dinner you're not prepared you're not ready to lunge attack whatever right you know if i'm walking down a street in a city that i don't know i have i'm holding something in my pocket i'm holding pepper spray in my pocket or something or i'm i'm thinking in my head i'm mentally preparing like somebody could attack me kick scratch scream something if i if something happens you know what i mean i'm ready to attack back but if you're just sitting at somewhere that you're supposed to feel safe that's unnerving yeah yeah. My first job was McDonald's. And as you were telling me this, like, people were trying to run, hide, get out, or hide in the back room. I was thinking, like, where would I have possibly gone? So in this like, particular one, they said that there was a basement. Oh, that's a big one then. So That's probably why there's a lot of people, too. Or if there was, like, a storage or something, um, that they had, like, a storage facility, and there six employees managed to hide back there oh, and survive it but that's six of 45 people initially right there was a kid that tried to play dead he figured it out and shot him in the head oh god what are my odds here what's i don't know you that know, stuff it literally makes me ill to try and think about it trying to make a decision like what do i do do i go for the gun do i go for the body like what combination of both do i well and that's what they have had to do on 9-11 when they that that one plane that crashed in yeah. the field that was right. headed for I think it was headed for the White House, right. if I remember, right? Every other plane was taken over by hijackers, but that one plane 
they came together and decided they were going to rush the guys. Right. And so they had to do it knowing that they were going to die. Mm-hmm. Like, you have to do it knowing that, like, the chances of me surviving this are almost none. But I'm going to die either way, so who can I save in the meantime? Right. That was a crazy one. I can't believe I'd never heard of that. Podcast recommendation. I was on Instagram stories the other day talking about this. Um, Killer Psyche. It is narrated, hosted by Candace DeLong. She is a former FBI criminal profiler. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was trained under Robert Ressler, if I remember right, the guy behind um, Mindhunter. Right. And uh, she was one of the profilers on the Unabomber case. So that is now her podcast, uh, Killer Psyche. She breaks down the psyche of all of these notorious killers. So it's only like four episodes in right now. The first one was obviously the Unabomber because that was like the case that she she was part of. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's working through several of them. It's really interesting to hear her. She did Dr. Death, um, the doctor oh. that now there's a Peacock special on him that's really, really good. If you have Peacock at the streaming service. Um, that's really, really good, but she refers to that. Uh, but she does the breakdown of, like, their their psychology. Sure. That's and the most interesting part to me. That's why people love true crime. So right. that, that one's 10 out of 10. Would recommend. Okay. Um, it's a really, really good one. Also, the Dr. Death special on Peacock has been really good, so highly recommend. Speaking of Unabomber, though, I had not seen the Manhunt specials. Really? Series on Netflix. Yeah. And I just stumbled on the first one the other day, which was the... The Olympic Park bombings. That's the second one. So that's the first one I watched, though. Okay. So I had no idea that there's, like, a one and a two. But then I saw I... And I was talking to Brie about it. She's like, well, you need to watch the Unabomber one. I was like, all right, cool. So I started it. And I admit, I did not know nearly as much about the Unabomber as I thought I knew. Yeah. um, Until I watched this. And then they really focused, of course, on the profiling and the, the, the groundbreaking work that was put into trying to figure out who this man was. Mm-hmm. And it just, like, blew my mind. So if you guys get a chance, go on Netflix. It's called Manhunt Unabomber, right? You just search Manhunt. Right. You search Manhunt. At least there's at least two. Yeah. I and will say take that take those series for entertainment purposes only. Yes. There is a lot of fiction that has been built into those for yes. entertainment. But... Once you do that, then your algorithm will change a little bit on Netflix and it's going to shoot you some, you know, um, suggestions as, as to other Unabomber um, docuseries that have been done or documentaries. And those are really interesting, too, because you get the, the more factual documentary type information on it. But nonetheless, it was good. So I would totally recommend Manhunt, um, both of them. All right. That's all, all right. I got. That was... I, I, that's why I like true crime, because I'm like, there's never under stories. And, like, I I never heard that. So yeah. I'm really glad. I couldn't I do, like, to... a... I don't want to say I couldn't do a murder, because that was a murder. But I couldn't do, like, a... A personal murder? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why mass... I think that's part of the problem with mass shootings, is they feel very impersonal. Mm-hmm. And so people don't necessarily, like... Connect with them? Yeah, maybe that's it. But, yeah, I just... My brain didn't have the capacity for it this week, so... Okay. Well, buckle up, because next week's is going to be very personal. Great. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Yeah. (laughs) 
All right, everyone. Thanks for listening uh, to this week's episode. Hope you liked it and hope it was a new episode, new case for you, just like it was for me. Thanks, Kens. Bye. Bye. Bye.